Read along with me if you would, please. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, possess and to cast out many nations from before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. Nor shall you make arrangements with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you give your, take their daughter for your son. Because they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods so that the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations to those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with he who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which I command you today to observe them. Then it shall come to pass when you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock in the land in which you swore your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. I'm, I'm stop. I just have to give the side note. Do you even realize how revolutionary this is to write that not only a man, but a, a woman, but a man could be barren. Because in every culture up to about 200, 150 years ago, they all assumed that the only barrenness could come from a woman. And God actually speaks of both. Did you notice that in verse 14? Of course, he knows what he's doing. Science just has to catch up. Verse 15. <clears throat> and the Lord will take away from you all sickness and afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt in which you've known. But lay on them on lay them all on those who hate you. You shall destroy the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall not have pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, that it will be a snare to you. But if you shall say in your heart, These nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. The great trials in which your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out, so shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples to whom you're afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet 
among them until those who are left who hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. And he will deliver their kings in your hand. And you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one will be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. You shall burn their carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet even the gold or silver that's on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it. It is an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall, nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, we recognize that there are some chapters and it's all sort of lovey-dovey and we love those chapters because we feel all like we're snuggling into a lovely blanket. And then there are other chapters like this where the challenges are in the midst of it all, that warm and comfortable blanket, but also these challenges that are really offensive to our spirit, but still true nonetheless. The challenges are certainly ones that are great. And today in this room, Lord, I pray that you open our hearts and minds to hear you. And that today in this room, Lord, your Holy Spirit would speak to each of us. That you would speak fluent us personally. That we would be clearly so spoken to that we would feel small and see you as large. That we would see the intimacy that you desire. And that we today will fall into your arms where we belong and obey as you call us to. I pray, Lord, you immerse me with your spirit that I would disappear and you would appear. And I pray today, Lord, that you would, in this room, overcome us. May we be so captivated, so drawn in, that we are forever changed. So have your way, Lord. Thank you for the blessing of this time. Redeem every second we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority for which you test all things to be true or false. This is our second time at this river. The last time was the generation prior, historically. And we're staring at the land that God had promised. This is a land he promised would be fruitful. It would be a land that he promised we would be able to, in essence, set up headquarters to be a light for the rest of the world. It's a place that he's ordained every believer to be at. And sadly, there will be many who will not cross the Jordan to get there. They will be happy to be out of their bondage, at least the immediate bondage that they see. But they will not be happy to actually go to the place you call them to, which is a place where it's no longer simply about us, but about us being used to touch the rest of the world. In other words, we're more than happy to be pulled from drowning. But most of us will not volunteer when he calls us to be lifeguards. 
But by God's grace, he's brought us back to the Jordan. He could have said, once is enough, I'll just kill you all. But instead, he's brought us in to say, you have another chance here. This chapter breaks up into three very basic parts. And the challenge on all of this is that the place that you're going to go already has residence. According to Genesis 15:16, when God speaks to Abraham, he promises him that the land that he was going to walk through and walking through was a land he would give him, but not yet, because the fullness, he tells us, or the iniquity of the Amorites, as he puts it literally, is not yet complete. That the people who live there at the moment, still the jury is still out on their decision for him. But there is a day where God knew that the people as a whole would draw a line demarcating themselves as God, this God's enemies. There would be no chance for repentance. There would be no turning back. Now, I can't know that. You can't know that. We can't look at an individual and say that person's hopeless. If that be the case, some, and I look around the room, I included would be those people, other people would have deemed that earlier in our lives. We would have been the ones that they would have said, that person would never make it. But the challenge here is to leave who we were behind. This old mindset in the land God is deploying his people is really the old mindset in Egypt that the people had come from. God never promised he would perform vengeance on people simply because they were dumb. Aren't you thankful? But for those who openly declared their enmity against him, he is always going to win. In verses 1 through 6, the challenge will be to leave nothing. Leave nothing behind. In verses 7 through 11, the challenge will be to love God back. The rest of the chapter, verses 12 through 26, the challenge will be to let God bless you. Again, this is the way the chapter works. Leave nothing. Love God back. And then let him bless you. Read with me the first six verses again. When the Lord your God, by the way, the term Lord your God will be used 15 times in this small chapter. The term Lord, another five. Which means, by the way, in 26 verses, 20 times the term the Lord is used, either as the Lord or the Lord your God. Three times more, the Lord your God. It's important to recognize Lord means that he has a right to make decisions over your life. Your means you make personal claim to him, and God means that he is almighty to accomplish all of the things he's intended. It is a beautiful title. You can't have the Lord your God without a relationship. You can have the Lord God. Lord means he rules over everything. God means he has the power to do so. And my question even to start this is, is he the Lord your God or just the Lord God? Are you an employee to the great administrator, CEO in the sky? Or are you a child, adopted child of the living king? God tells us here, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, 
Did you notice the word when and not if? When God has a plan, it gets done. Which you go to possess and he casts out many nations from before you. And then he lists these seven nations. Hittites, Gergesites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites. Did you notice the term Perizzite? It's with a Z. You get that, but just the same. And the Jebusites. Any of you meet a Hivite lately? I, I, I would doubt it since they don't exist anymore. Or Hittite? They're about as popular as a person from Atlantis today in regards to their existence today. And God makes very clear in the verse, first verse that there are seven nations. Throughout Scripture, when God refers to the Gentile world, he'll always seem to speak of it in a manner of seven. For what it's worth, and again, don't just believe me, search the Scriptures, but seven always seems to be a number of completion throughout Scripture. And we even get that in the day. So there are seven days in a week. There are seven dwarfs. I mean, seven's kind of the number of completion. It's clear even in Scripture in the New Testament God speaks of this. When God, by the way, if you remember, when he speaks of the Jewish nation, what number does he often use there? Twelve. Twelve tribes. He'll even talk about the twelve disciples. Interesting, in the gospel that emphasizes Jesus' kingship, that's the gospel of Matthew, we have two different times that Jesus feeds the masses, in Matthew 14 and in Matthew 15. In Matthew 14, by the way, it is the Jewish people. There will be roughly 5,000 men and their families. That's roughly 15 to 20,000 people. For which we know he'll feed them with five loaves and two fish. But what's left over? What's left over are 12 baskets. I find that interesting. The next chapter, by the way, Jesus will go to a different spot. A spot, by the way, that we would know more from a crazy man back earlier in the text. And there it is 4,000 Gentile people, and men and their families. And my question is, where did the 4,000 Gentiles come from? Well, interesting, they're from the area where one man, well, two, but one specifically, possessed by a legion of demons is delivered. And instead of coming to Jesus and following him after that, and he says, let me follow you, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he says, go back home to your mother and to your family and your friends. Well, I can see why now. 4,000 men and their families have shown up when Jesus comes near town again. And when he does, what's left over there? Seven baskets. Different baskets, by the way. Much larger baskets for what it's worth. There's the picnic basket that would be used, by the way, the term that's used for the twelve. Then there'd be the kind of basket that Paul, the, the missionary, would be let down from the side of a wall. Obviously, you couldn't let down Paul in a picnic basket. And there would be seven of those. I think it's interesting in the New Testament that God refers to this in regards to those same numbers. And I'm not trying to get kind of mystical. The point is quite simple. That God still has a heart for both peoples. That's the idea here. In our text, he tells us that there are seven particular nations that have openly sworn war against the living God. Now, there is a teaching among some among the church in mass that says that God's going to sort of let everyone into heaven and let them be just who they are. Come on, I'm a decent person. The problem is if God lets decent people into heaven, well, it's not going to be heaven for any of us. Because when we actually, according to Scripture, that nobody's good except God himself. Nobody even seeks after him, which is why I have a problem with what we might call the seeker church. 
Because I would say that people are looking for everything that God has to offer without having to go to God for it. But rather instead that the Lord really genuinely reveals himself and is in hot pursuit of man because man will not be in hot pursuit of him without it. Loves him and pays for him. Wants him. And then makes us brand new creatures. And that becomes the point of this. So he says, when you go into this land, these people are going to be driven out. These people are going to be driven out because they've sworn war against me and they're going to lose. Verses 2 and 3, let's be honest, are rough verses. Because what God says is that it is cruel to be kind. But I get it. I get it from our own perspective. But here's the idea here. He says, look it. Take nothing. Leave no leftovers. Let there be no remains left for you to take. By the end of this chapter, he'll actually say, don't even, look, don't even want the gold that's on an idol. Which is interesting, because when we get to the book of Joshua, there will be a man named Achan. We might say Achan, who lives up to his name. He's very much Achan by the end of his story. He gets stoned. Because he actually steals some of the gold and silver from one of the places God said not to. So follow me on this for a second. Here's the idea. In these first six verses, God says, I'm going to bring you into a place of fruitfulness. But when I bring you into a place of fruitfulness, you are not there to sip off of their cocktail. You are there to change it. You are there to transform it. You are there to make a difference in that place. Not to become part of that culture, but to create a whole new culture. So here's the deal. Do you really, really want to blend in? Do you really, really want to be a chameleon? Do you really, really want it to be to not stand out? God forbid in this culture, isn't that what it's all about? Not standing out. We don't even want to be excellent at something because we're afraid it'll sort of make us stand out from the rest of the crowd. And here we just want to be part of the crowd. But to not be part of the crowd... To stand out, well, that's somebody else's culture, not our culture. Well, let me just say, it's heaven's culture is what it is. Because God never told us to do anything mediocre. God never told us to do anything mamby-pamby. He tells us that no matter what we do, we do heartily. Do you know what it means to do something heartily? I mean, I'm not just talking about in theory. Do you know in practice what it means to do something heartily? I mean, where you realize your heart is in this thing. Because here he says, now look at, I'm bringing you into a culture, you're going to drive out what's there right now, because that culture is an enmity against me. It stands against me. It doesn't want me. It says, I want everything but God. Don't give me that God. Shut up about that God. Oh, you can say God or gods. I can't tell you how many times lately I hear gods bless you. Have anyone said that to you lately? I happen to sneeze a lot these days, so I get it a lot. I mean, I appreciate the kindness, but I'm like, there's one, ma'am. Which is like, oh, well, how dare you? I was trying to be nice. I'm like, I'm trying to be nicer. Now, I can t- if you're part of me for saying, I can understand that if they come from a culture that's more east of here. But when that comes out of a very fair-skinned, ginger-haired, someone with a Cockney accent, it's very disturbing to me. I think about Paul when he winds up in Athens and it tells us that his spirit was provoked because the city was given over to idols. And I've had to since Wednesday when we, and actually even earlier that we were preparing, 
had, because we went through it then on our Wednesday study, I've had to walk through it and go, is my spirit provoked by my city? This is my city with you. Because it really is given over. We need to be tolerant. And God says here, no, you should not be tolerant. Well, wow, that is so politically incorrect. Yes, you're right. Well, now that we're all aware of it, what are we going to do? Are we going to obey God or are we going to obey society? And he says, look it, I don't want you going in there and snuggling with something I'm about to take down. Why would you want to become best friends with the Titanic? Like, you know, I just want you to know I've got a permanent residence on the Titanic. Well, good, that'll be short-lived. Somewhere down the line, to associate yourself, well, to associate yourself is death. And that's what he's warning us here. There's an individual I've had the privilege of sitting with lately whose grandfather, because this man is not only German, he's from Germany, German, whose grandfather was a conscientious objector to the Nazi party but was drafted into the Nazi army. And out of fear, they, he, they, he, they drew him into the army. They put, him a, put a Nazi uniform on him and threw him into the heat of the battle knowing he wouldn't fire so he would be killed. The good news is, is that at least he didn't have to fire a shot. The bad news is he was killed for it. Please hear me. The Lord says this, that whoever is in Christ is a new creation. He's told us that in 2 Corinthians 6 and in Galatians as well. He says that's what really matters. You're a new creation. And one of the verses we don't like the most is what it says right after that in the book of 2 Corinthians. It says as a result of that, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. A yoke, remember, is the thing you put for task. The problem is, Unequally yoked doesn't just mean somebody that is clearly against God. Sometimes it's somebody in the church that you know is completely heading in the opposite direction of yours. And there you are trying to link with them. And all you're going to do is butt heads and challenge each other because you're going to be constantly going in different directions your whole time. Because Amos 3.3 tells us, how can two walk together unless they agree? What is it you're linking yourself with? That this is where you're at, but the whole time it's like this the whole time. Is that what you want? And he goes, man, when you jump into this place, when you go in, you are there to make a difference. You are not there to become its hero. You are there to become its transformer. And I don't mean that like you're going to become a, you know, a, a car or a truck or a robot. You're there to change it. And so listen to this text, because it really is... He's like, look, at, I don't want you to do anything. He goes, I don't even want you to, to get to that place where you're such good friends that like your son and their daughter or their son and your daughter, because he goes, I don't want there to be an intimacy here. What I want is there to be an intent. And that intent is one that says, look, at, I just want you to know I am here to change this. Now, for some, that's really offensive. Why wouldn't it be offensive? I just want you to know I'm here to change this. You're hopeless, and I want to bring hope. You're dying and I want to bring life. You're desperate and I want to bring peace. There's the difference. If a nation were dying of Ebola and a doctor came in with its cure and that doctor said, I am here to heal this place. Are you with me? Those that are humble enough to admit their need will be transformed. Those who are not 
will die. The issue, though, is whether the doctor is going to be innocent. For that, he needs to be different. Here is the problem. Inside of you and inside of me, God has placed a core appetite. And that core appetite is to be wanted, is to be important, is to be loved. And I don't care how cold you are, how prickly, how frigid, how seemingly unnecessary, one way or another, you have it in you. I've watched some of the coldest people in the world find a dog and everything changes. I had a Russian friend who I mean, was just gigantic. I mean, it was like somebody just kept pumping and pumping until there was no skin left to spread. And he just, he'd, be, he'd have to turn sideways when he walked in the room. And he was like, yeah, da. And we said, da, the rafters would, you know, would shake. And he would just walk in and he was always like, and he would, you know, he's like, I will kill you. He always had that look on his face. And I watched him when they brought a dog into this room and he was like, oh, did you do it? And I was like, what in the world? He turned into a care bear in front of me. He's like, oh, the little doggy. And the reason I say that is within every one of us, there is, whether you want to hide it and how you want to cover it up, there is a drive, a desperate, insatiable hunger to be important and to be wanted. And if you cannot find that in the Lord, which will be our second part here. You will not be you'll be improper for deployment. Because man, when God deploys you, you better be clear on your mission, homes, or you're going to get shot. And the Lord says, "I'm bringing you in this place, and I want nothing left." But let me ask that in your own life. If you are a new creation, are there any leftovers? That's the question I ask myself. Is there anything in my old world, the old values, my Egypt, that could play into my own demise and defeat in the new place he sends me like this? That self, of, that port of self-importance or that point of just <coughs> survival where I would kick everyone else out of my heart to just do what I want to do in my way and just to shut down and hate everything else. That is a real temptation in a place like this where everyone's so isolated. Have you ever seen a thousand people shoved on a train yet so alone in your life as here? It's like the most convenient thing in the world is that we have iPhones and galaxies because at least we don't look so strange avoiding eye contact with everyone else. I took a picture once, there were, and I counted it, there were 60-something people on my train car, every one of them going like this, staring at this little screen. Well, except for a few that had a little larger screen. Because it isn't as weird, because then it looks like you're doing something. It's so strange, because not a single one of them would talk to another single one of them. And of course, you're like, hi. They're like, ah! I'm like, hey, funny, you should bring that up. You know, that's, you know, get the idea. And the point is, that, like, there's this, we, we love to be isolated in this sense, because we feel safe in that. There's this safeness in our isolation. And then we go into a place like this, and I'm like, pray for each other. And some of you are like, what? What kind of person makes us do that? Pray that's a personal thing. I don't think we have to pay a lot. Well, then don't. Just look at someone and go, hmm. And, you know, and the whole point of it is, is that I'm trying to get us to get to this place where we aren't like that. Where our bubbles are actually much bigger than include each other. 
That is a temptation in this culture, is it not? Because that's a temptation in this culture, I need to recognize, is there any place in my Egypt that looks like this new place? Because if so, and I'm not aware of it, and God says, I don't want any residue. I don't want any leftovers. I don't want any of that old world being dragged into this where it's going to take you down. Does that make sense? Does it? We're in a culture where we don't offend people here. We don't stand out. We don't offend. But Jesus is offensive, and he told us so. He said, blessed is he who is not offended by me. So we know that enough to try to make it like God's cool, but Jesus isn't, because Jesus is where the offense starts. So we'll just kind of God it at best and feel like we're being extremely bold. But that's not the name above all names because a lot of people ascribe all kinds of things to God. But there's one Jesus and he is the name above every name. And everyone who's got a need, that includes Satan, he appears to have one too, is going to bow before him and confess he's Lord. And I'd love to be there when Satan confesses Jesus is Lord and say, you're right, you win. And it's going to happen. I would have just liked to have beaten the rush and done it now. Because one of the scariest verses in Scripture is where Jesus says, whoever shrivels or is ashamed of me in this perverse generation, I will be ashamed of him before her Father and the angels of God. I don't want that. I think, oh my goodness, how easy is it to shrink back and shrivel to total strangers? Why are you this way? Why are you so nice? Why do you have this peace? Why do you have this joy? And that's people that aren't total strangers because they've been around long enough to see that. Some of you are going to go to families this Christmas and your temptation will be to be quiet and to really tone down this Jesus thing because you know it's going to stir up some feathers. So what are you going to do about it? Do you realize that's another culture that you're supposed to be brought in to bring light into an otherwise dark place? Well, what if your family's sort of Christian? Sort of Christian? That's like being sort of pregnant. It's like being sort of on the train. Do you think that ever works out well? Sort of on the train. We had that. We've had some of one of Jenny's favorite memories is coming onto a train, but my guitar, well, it didn't quite make it because it was strapped onto my back. It was sort of on the train. My rescuers from that were moseying behind me worked the jaws of life to pull that thing off so my guitar could go in. And then the train smacked closed and drove away while I was on it and they were all on the other side going, ah, I saved your guitar. God didn't say hate them, be spiteful to them because I don't like them. God says, I know the danger that you, if you were honest with yourself, but you won't be. I know the danger they present. See, to God, nothing is more important than your intimacy with him. Nothing is more important. And he knows when you hook up, it's going to take you away. He knows that. 
And understand, that's not just you. That's every other person that God has called you to touch is going to be less touched, less less affected. Your fruitfulness is going to wane. Your joy is going to get sucked out because you traded it. God says, I don't want it. I don't want it at all. I love you way too much to watch you die like that. I hate it. I'd rather it be gone from your life completely. I think there's some God would rather you be Amish than convoluted here in London. I'm not telling you God's recruiting people to go raise barns somewhere in Pennsylvania. What I am telling you is that some of us feel like there are things that are necessary that aren't necessary at all. And we're saying, but God, I need, but God, I got to have. And God says, no, this is the way Jesus says it. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And you're like, ah, really? Is he being literal? Well, one thing we could be sure of is that he's serious about this. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Can you imagine we're a church that all looks like one-handed pirates? But he didn't just say that. He said, because it would be better for you to have one hand in heaven than for you to be able to applaud your way to hell. It would be better for you to look like, what's the guy from the Avengers? You know, the, well, anyways. Where's Daniel? I should ask him. It's the patch. Thank you. It would be better for you to look like Nick Fury than it would for you to have depth perception on the way to be able to see 3D hell. But if God were going to say that, and then he actually talks about the sinning brothers and getting right with it, if that's how serious Jesus is with it, let me ask you, is there anything you're like, well, that's a little harsh. I don't know if I really want to do that because it's a little harsh. Is it really? What environments are you trying to blend in instead of transform? What environments are you just trying to just sort of not make waves where the bottom line is it's a, it's a vat of death? And I understand what he's saying here. Because if we didn't get this, and most of us, what grieves me is most of us can agree with it ideologically, but when the rubber really hits the road outside these doors, let's see what happens. So don't tell me somebody's cute and nice and they say they're a Christian. It ain't going to work here. I want to see them bear fruit. They should challenge you. You should be both. A great relationship should be two people that are convinced that the other one's more in love with Jesus than they are. And that it's an actual, beautiful quality. Oh, God, help us. Verse 4 says, they'll turn away your sons from following me. That's why I don't want it. Because to me, they mean spiritual death. And I don't want it. Imagine if eating at some specific place would literally just give you cancer the moment you started eating there. God said, shut the place down. I don't want you even just to not eat there. I want you to get that place shut down. Because I don't want anyone to die there. That's the point here. This is how you should deal with them. This is how serious it gets. Verse 5. I want you to destroy their altars. Where they go to go and worship their gods, I want them down. I don't want anyone to be able to get there. I don't want it to be there for them to get to. I want you to break down their sacred pillars. You know what that means? That's, by the way, that was where people had rampant sex. 
I'm one of those things I know. I'm not telling you to go and burn down an abortion clinic. I'm not telling you to go and set fire or blow up a, you know, a massage parlor. We're called to be evangelists. We're called to make a difference by seeing them transform. This is what we saw. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with the fact that in Camden Borough, they passed a quick rule that actually revoked the license of every massage parlor. You will not find one in Camden Borough. Are you aware of that? We've been praying for that since we got here. But that doesn't mean those people went away. It just means that they don't operate now publicly in the borough of Camden. But those people still need Jesus. And he tells us here, I want you to take down their pillars. How many of you have pillars in your house right now? Places where you could go and when no one else is looking, there's still some form of sexual gratification offered there. Cut down their wooden images and even burn their carved images. That's their idols or icons. Those things would clearly understand God has no interest in anything being between him and them. And they're things that you could kind of slip into Christianity and still make cool. The idea of it. Here's the idea. God has no interest. When he died for us, it wasn't like he died for us so you could actually find five more steps to get to him. This is my problem with a lot of things that are sort of under the umbrella of Christianity called okay. Like, let's go pray to his mom. I'm going to go right for the throat of these things. Why shouldn't I? As if Jesus were to say, now that I died for you and rose again and delivered you, you know what I'd really like from this point on? You need to talk to my mom. Who wants to marry that guy, ladies? That's messed up. Well, let's go beyond that. I mean, if you really love me, now that I've died for you and risen again, from this point on, I want you to talk to someone who died 300 years ago that you'll never meet, maybe in heaven at that point you won't care. There's a picture of him or his bones in a, in a glass case or some kind of carved image you can go look to and then find out which one is territorial, the patron saint of this or the patron saint of that. Do you really think that's what God wants? Jesus died to be with you. Even if these guys were living in awesome, the bottom line is Jesus still wouldn't say, hey, you know what, now that we're together, why don't you talk through my brothers? What kind of marriage is that? Messed up is what that is. What God wants is intimacy. That's what he wants is intimacy, and he doesn't want anything in the way of it. He doesn't want anything in the way of it. Nothing. And you go, but that's so much easier. Sure. So is that's the same way of saying, Marriage is so much easier with someone that doesn't exist. That'd be like Amina saying, you know, I just want you to know I'm actually married to one of the guys from One Direction. Oh, that's really sweet. What's it like? Well, you know, we have no arguments. He's never been angry at me. And he sings to me all the time. I feel beautiful because I don't think I'm beautiful. And that's what makes me beautiful. It's so wonderful. We all think, oh, bless her delusion. But it's not real. You go, well, that's just an easy marriage. And that's two faulty people. But what happens, and you can always, the problem with two faulty people being married is we could have this tendency to think that all the problems sit on the other person. What happens when you're married to God? Well, what becomes real evident is you the problem. We don't like that even if it is true. I'll move forward on this, but please hear me on all this. The Lord says, I don't want any residue of your old life. I don't want any part of your Egypt still with you. I don't want any bracelets. I don't want any bands. I don't want any glory days in your hearts. I don't want any of that. 
And if we do that, what will happen is you'll wake up in bed next to, us, next to somebody and go, I'm supposed to be a Christian. What am I doing? Or you'll find yourself in this place where you realize everything you've done in the, the castle you've built is completely on avarice and vice and selfishness. And you've excluded God out of the whole thing. And you wake up one day and go, oh, my goodness, God, what happened? Because I have a right to be angry because this bad thing happened. Or I have a right to be this and I have a right to be that. And by the time you're done, your rights have built a castle that's that's governed God to be somewhere other than where your heart is. God doesn't want it. We live in an entitlement generation. We are slaves of Christ. Note the difference. They're opposite. Give me what I deserve. God's like, you want hell? I died to not send you there. But now you're an adopted child if you've said yes to Jesus. Verse 6 tells us again, because. Verse 4 told us because this is what will happen to you. Verse 6 tells us this is because of who you are now. You're a holy people. But did you notice in this, you're not holy from, but you're holy to? Did you notice that in the verse? Holiness is not about being from things. It's about being to him. There's the difference. We think of holiness as, oh, I don't, what do they say? I don't drink and chew and go with girls that do that kind of thing. You know, and the idea of it is, oh, I'll tell you why I'm holy, because I don't see those kind of movies and I don't go to those kind of places and I don't do that kind of thing at all. And I don't talk like that. That doesn't make you holy. According to Scripture, what real holiness is, is unto. What makes us different from the world is not that we don't do some of the things the world does. And God forbid these days, the church doesn't look any different. Most of the things that the world does, we do too. And I mean that in mass, not in regards to our fellowship. But we don't look any different that way. But if it really were just about the things we don't do that the world does, well, then the cults have us beat. Some cultures out there have us beat. What makes us different, and that's all the word holy means in the simplest sense, it means different, weird, unique set apart is we're his that's the difference what the rest of the world cannot have is the presence of the Lord that only comes through Jesus Christ and you have him you're holy unto me that's the point now notice by the way for what it's worth in this verse it tells us he's chosen you as a special people for himself a special treasure the moment God speaks chosen, you might want to ask for what? If I went to Camilla and said, Camilla, I choose you, she would be wise to say, for what? She could just run around and say, check me out, I'm chosen. PT chose me. I'd say, for, for great, what does that mean? And it would be worse if she was chosen for something and she was so busy telling other people she was chosen that she didn't do what I asked her. That would be weird. There's a whole part of Christianity that has paraded itself to say, if you're going to be a smart Christian, you need to focus on the fact that you're chosen, which is really sad. And let me tell you why. Because if you know that God chose you, and by the way, if you belong to him, he chose you. The issue isn't whether he chose you. The issue now is whether God would choose someone else. Isn't that a weird place to be as a Christian? Well, I know God chose me. Now you I'm not sure about. Wow, that sounds funky. But he tells us here, by the way, I've chosen you. The question might be, for what? In Isaiah 42, 6, it tells us, The Lord, I have called you, chosen you, in righteousness. And will hold your hand, I will give you, will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the Gentiles. 
Isaiah 49.3, God says, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. In other words, people should look to you and see what I look like, what I'm like. Isaiah 51.4, God says, Listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light to the peoples. Romans chapter 3, verse 1, when Paul speaks about the, the Jews, he says, well, what benefit is there in being Jewish then? What advantage is there as a Jew? What profit is there in circumcision? And he says, much in every way. Chiefly because to them was committed the oracles or promises or prophecies of God. God says that God took a specific group of people. And as he took a specific group of people, he says, I'm going to set you apart as an example for the whole world to see how amazing it will be to walk into my love. So that the rest of the world will hunger for it and cry out to me and say, okay, whatever God they serve, I want that one. Because I've chosen you for this purpose. There is a purpose in your choosing. Now understand, I've kind of got this. Because God's going to delineate here in a moment that there are two unique things. And look at it with me. But, the, but by the way, <laughs> it's important to recognize that in 1 Peter 2.9, God speaks about us and He says, You're a chosen generation now, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you might proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of the darkness into His glorious or marvelous light. He says, I've called you now. Now, God has not stopped loving Israel. God also hasn't stopped His mission with them, but it tells us in the book of Romans, He set aside that mission for a moment to use the church to do that very same thing. And here's the funny part, how condemning the church could be. And especially there's this mindset that, that the church is replaced. The church hasn't replaced. The church has been brought in as backup. And the point is simple. We're supposed to demonstrate what God says they weren't doing. So he says, I'm going to bring somebody else to do the work. We're not doing it either. What we're supposed to be doing is showing the world how amazing it is to be loved by the Father through Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to be doing now. Are we doing that? Which takes us back to the first part, isn't it? Which is leave nothing. Leave nothing. You know, like when you go into the new place, leave nothing standing. I want it all out so that you can make a difference. Take none of that old stuff with you and leave nothing in front of you, ahead of you. But take me instead. And then he says, look, I want you to love me so much that I emanate through you in such a way that the world goes, whoever it is you serve, whatever it is you're on, I want it. And you say, it's Jesus. And they go, oh, and you know the moment you say that. If you would have said, here, it's a pill. Here it is, it's a program. They would say yes. But the moment you say Jesus, it's going to take them a while to get used to that. You know why? Because a pill you're not accountable to. A program you can jump out if you don't, you know, if you don't like it. But a person you are accountable to the relationship, and that's different. And he says, look it, I've set you apart Stop looking like the rest of the world when I'm setting you apart, which tells me that if I'm trying to blend in with the world while the Holy Spirit's trying to make me different, well, then I'm absolutely fighting the Holy Spirit. Have a nice day. The Lord says, I'm trying to make you different. And you're like, but I'm just trying to be like everyone else because I want to be wanted. God says, I put that in you so you would cry out to me. Cry out to me. Get that in me so that you'll stop pleasing people so that Paul would say, hey, if I still wanted to please people, I would never be a servant of God. Because all the, the culture has to do is say, you know what, if you really want to please, you can shut up about Jesus. And you're like, oh, yes, sir. Look at verse 7. The Lord did not set His love on you, 
nor choose you because you were in number more than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. Did you notice he delineated the difference between set his love on you and then choose you? Those were two very different things. He says, I didn't set my love on you for this purpose, and I didn't choose you for this purpose. Those are two very different things. And he used the word nor in between to very delineate. Those are two very different things. The Bible tells us God so loved the what? God so loved the, the world. Oh, come on now. Now, now I've, been, I've been giving it your turn. God so loved the what? Come on now. God so loved the... Those are the people out there, right? That you were a part of? God so loved the what? It doesn't say God so loved the church. Don't tell me for a moment God only loved the church, otherwise Jesus' blood has been wasted. God loved the world. And He so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe on Him wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. And whether that's, if you'll pardon me for saying, whether that's the baby raper, the psychotic, or the, the guy that's living right now, or you know, spending most of his time up in the gherkin making eight figures. He loves them and wants them. He set his love on everyone. But you're like, well, where's the sovereignty in that? His choosing. I didn't choose to become a pastor, but boy, am I thankful. The calling he places on your life, evangelist, pastor, missionary, you know, preacher, whatever it is, prophet, apostle, church planner, parent that raises their children in the ways of the Lord, friend that leads their friends in the ways of the Lord. Whatever he's called you to, that's his choosing because he knows what's best. He's such a smart coach. He can actually develop the strengths in his players in such a way that when he puts them on the field, they win all the time. So as a football, or as a basketball coach for a season, or actually several seasons, I remember you started looking at certain things. I mean, certain guys like looks like Jeffrey, but he's like three times as wide. They put him in the middle. That way, when people try to come in, there's a wall there. And there's this little guy that's like kind of scrawny, and he's like real quick with his hands, that kind of thing. They call him the point guard. He's the guy that handles the ball the most because it's really hard to steal the ball from a guy that's like two feet tall. They're like reaching in and falling over. And as a coach, you, that's one of the things you start looking for are the strengths so that not only so whether they can make the team, but where they're going to be on the team. And a smart coach knows you put them in places where they're going to operate by the things that they've been given. Does that make sense? Well, the Lord's even smarter because what the Lord does is He actually created those things in you knowing the position you're going to play. That's where God is in this. He's like, I've given you a voice. I've given you social giftings. I've given you a great brain. I've given you these talents and these creativities and this way to be able to put things together in an administrative fashion. Oh, God, we need all of those things. But when the body doesn't function correctly, often it's not because two parts aren't working well. How many parts of your body have to work poorly for your body to actually start really suffering? I'll say there's one. But notice this whole second section is all about his love. See, look, he didn't set his love on you because you deserved it. It wasn't because you were so darn big or because you were so darn impressive. He set his love on you because he's love. That's why. So stop trying to earn it. And that's the point. As Luke tells us in 747, like the plane, where there's much forgiveness, there's much love. Do you realize how much you've been forgiven? Because if you do, our proper response is much love. Or did you think God just kind of waved his hand a little bit and that was good enough? 
Your sins alone would be enough for the cross. You're aware of that, right? So stop trying to earn his love. Because the moment you start trying to figure out what God saw in you, it's all about you when you start thinking about yourself and you stop being used. Or worse yet, you think you've figured it out. And then you're like, whoa, is he is a good thing he has me on the team. Do you know what God saw in you? A need he could fill. A need for love. A need to be wanted. A need to be important. And he showed it all to you on the cross. Me too. Finally, our last section. So listen, the first thing, leave nothing. Man, when you're coming out of that old world, leave. You know, it's like take nothing with you. And when you bring it in the new place, I want you to take it and ravish it to make it brand new. I don't want you to look and go, well, we could probably keep that or that or that. I want you to look and go, I want everything to be different. God, everything. Everything in society different. And you're like, well, that seems roughly redeemable. How about God starts it from the ground up? And that's what we've seen, by the way, with counseling. Where we call it Christian counseling, but it's secular counseling. And they maybe, maybe, maybe they pray at the end, but it's still secular counseling. I've heard someone tell me recently about a very wise statement made by an architect that says it's a lot easier to change the roof than the foundation. And might I say the problem is the foundation. So here's the last part. Well, then let him bless you. First part, leave nothing. Second, love God back. Because he so loves you, what do we respond? Therefore, verse 9, know that the Lord's your God. Know that, by the way, the Lord your God, he's, good, he's God, he's faithful. He keeps his covenant, his mercy for a thousand generations. And notice in verses 9 and 10, it says, for those who love him, he's going to love them. Verse 10, it says, he repays those who hate him. Do you see that in verse 10? Notice it didn't say he already ordained people to hate. The point is, is that God is, how do you repay someone? To repay them, they've paid you first. Or they've done something, you need to repay them. That's a response. And he says this, in the end of it all, did you notice it all breaks down to who loves him and who hates him? Verses 9 and 10. Not who he loves and who he hates. Who loves him and who hates him. Well, therefore, verse 11, it tells us this then. Keep those commandments, would you? Notice it's one commandment here. Keep the commandment. And if you're willing to do what he says, he so wants to bless you. But please hear me as we're almost done. He doesn't want to bless our disobedience. He doesn't want us selfishly living to exalt ourselves, to find comfort and to find purpose in the world by the world's standards and then him empowering us to go and become like the world he's driving out. What he wants is this to be so different that he wants to give us a power that transforms purposely, permanently. So that the dance community looks different. So that the West End looks different. So that the stalls look different. So that the workforce in London looks different. So that the society looks different. So that the families look different. And whether you're serving a latte or whether you're taking a second encore, he's called you to make a difference in your society. And you're like, well, how do I make a difference? Here's how he starts it. I love you, love me back. How's that? How? How do I love him back? Do what I say. Well, how do I do that? Well, if you start by saying, here's my heart, Lord. You can change anything you want. Then be aware of the fact he's not, he's not quiet. He knows how to talk. Like others. 
So let me bless you. Because the Lord has promised to bless the obedient with fruitfulness, vivacity, and victory. Notice this verse. Verse 13, he says, He will love you and bless you. Now notice it tells us before this that He loved you before you were anything. Now that you think you're something, I'm still going to love you. But understand, I want to love you. I want to pour forth my love on you. But I want you to obey me to do so. And He says, I will love you, bless you, multiply you. I'll bless the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your land, the grain and new wine, your oil, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flock, and the land in which He swore to your fathers to give. He will, you'll be blessed above every other people. Yeah, will they be jealous? Probably but I'm afraid that people will say, you're just trying to show off or you're just trying to stand out or whatever. He's actually told me I'm supposed to stand out. I don't have to make myself stand out. I'm supposed to love him and obey him. He'll do the rest. This is a little take away all your sickness, what you've afflicted and all that, and he will destroy the peoples all around you. So don't serve those things because they're going to become a snare. He says, you know what's really simple? I'm going to give you fruitfulness. I will give you vivacity of life. And then I'll give you victory. Isn't that what you want? I mean, Jesus had told us in John 10.10 10, that he'd come that we'd have life and life more abundantly. In John 15, he told us that his whole purpose was that ultimately, as we cling to him, that we'd bear fruit and that our fruit would remain. I want you fruitful. I want you transforming this world. And I want you to have abundant life. And I want you to have victory. And you're like, I don't feel victorious. Maybe the purpose is that you're not actually loving him back like you should. You're actually dragging old things. It's easy to be ensnared when you're familiar with old snares and then you're dragging them with you. Well, that seems quite simple. So if you're in one of those relationships or you have a friend, it's like every time I'm with this friend, I get dragged down. Cut it off. That sounds so harsh. Well, how are they going to hear about Jesus? Well, they ain't hearing it well from you, are they? Don't you think the coach knows how to bring in someone else? Leave space for it. And be like the girl who's going out with the wrong guy when God has the right guy, but he's not going to step in when she's with someone else. But we're afraid of being alone. How could you be afraid of being alone when the Lord is with you? So step out, beloved. It says in verse 17, if you should say in your heart these nations are greater, just stop being afraid of them. And I have to ask myself these questions, too. Am I more familiar with the problem or with God's power? Have I really analyzed the problem so much that I'm super intimate with this problem, this challenge, this weakness in me? Oh, I seem to know it from so many angles, but I'm so unfamiliar with the power of God because I'm too busy becoming a problemologist that I am intimate with the one who actually has the power to defeat it. So can I say it this way? Stop sizing up the enemy and start magnifying the Lord. He says, you shouldn't be afraid of them, verse 18, but you should remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and and all to Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw. Didn't I take you out of Egypt already? Haven't I pulled you out of a place you never thought you could ever leave? You you thought you were completely a sucker your whole life, and I took you out of that. Can't I take you in if I could take you out? Verse 19 says, With great trials, your own eyes saw the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand of the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God, and this is where that climax is, brought you out so that the Lord your God, due to all the people in whom you're afraid, moreover, the Lord your God. Did you notice that? In case you're missing it. He'll even send the hornet. And you're like, the hornet? 
Have you ever been stung by a hornet? Nobody likes it. Now, there's certain things that there's at least a little comfort. Certain bees, they sting you and you're like, that stinks. You know, it stings. I don't really like it. But there's, as weird as it is, there's the comfort to think, well, that thing's going to, at least it's going to die for it. And then there are other things. They just bite you and then they're like, ha ha, what's more of that? How you like me now? And that's a hornet. In Exodus 23:28, it tells us that I'll send the hornets before you, by the way, and you'll drive out the Hivite and Canaanite. He's already promised that. In Joshua 24, when he looks back at taking the land, he says, by the way, I sent the hornet before you. It's really hard to swing a sword when you're getting stung in the face over and over and over by a hornet or many of them. God knows. He didn't invent those for you. He invented that for the ones who want to stand against him. Think of the other things God could invent. You want to see what God's little creativity. Read the book of Revelation about the things that come out of the pit. They have like faces like men, hair like women, teeth like lions, flying scorpion kind of things that sound like trains coming by. Some are like, well, I think that that's probably a helicopter. You know what I think it is? A freaky looking flying scorpion looking demon bug. They're like, well, that just sounds really strange. Yeah, but I think you're going to agree with me one day. It's only strange because you haven't seen them now. And by the way, praise the Lord for that. He's going to drive them out. Now notice verse 22, and we'll bring this around. This is important. I can't skip past this. It tells us in verse 21, don't be terrified of them. Let me tell you why. Because the Lord your God... The great and awesome God is among you. Are you aware of that? Verse 22 says, The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will be unable to destroy them all at once because otherwise the beasts of the field will become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you and will, and will inflict defeat upon them until they're destroyed. Don't miss this <clears throat> because this becomes fundamental. All of a sudden, Jenny comes in. She goes, you know, and this is hypothetical because she's been a Christian a lot longer. Pastor Tony, I've been a Christian for four weeks and I'm still struggling with this sin. What's up? I thought by now I should be totally free from sin. And Ellie says, yeah, you know, I've been struggling with some for a couple of years. Christian says, you know, what's weird is actually I saw a whole bunch of things go down. I have a whole new batch of things I didn't know I had problems with. And now look at what I'm dealing with. And they say, what gives? PT, and I say, well, Deuteronomy chapter 7. God says, I'm not going to give it all to you at one time. I'm going to give it to you part by part. And let me tell you why. Because if I don't, it's going to become, well, it's going to become a place for wild beasts. In other words, you're not fruitful enough to inhabit it. You won't even live there if I delivered it from you or for you. So this is the way it works. The day that Marcia gave her life to the Lord, God delivered her for some things, and she could tell people how the Lord had changed her. Throughout the course of time, she could tell you a year later, the Lord's been working on this in my life and changing me. A year after that, she can say, let me tell you what the Lord's doing in my life now. Then there's a time where she's like, well, I don't feel like the Lord's doing anything. But then she's realizing I'm not really in the fellowship I should be or I'm not in the place where I should be. And I'm kind of living in this place. I need to get back. And one of the reasons she recognizes that is because she isn't seeing the change she's been seeing up to that point. Does that make sense? 
So then she says, I need to get right. If God delivered everything in David's life the moment he said yes, how could he tell you about the God of today? Only by the things that God would give him, like he's Santa, Father Christmas? Exactly. So please hear me in this. Maybe there's something right now that you're battling and you're like, you know, by this point, this should be God. Have you got to this point where you think, I'm just going to die with this problem now? Because it's been around for so long. I feel like this is just who I am. Well, can I just say, stop dragging your Egypt into the new land. Leave it there. You're a new creation now. Stop pretending like you're something you're not. That's not who you are anymore. Who you are now. Well, you're a new creation in Christ. You were adopted by the Most High. You are a child of the Most High God. And he says, I've still got plans. Scripture tells us, by the way, you you, um, are saved or you've been saved. You are being saved and you will be saved. You're like, how does that work? Simple. The day you said yes to Jesus, you were saved from the penalty of sin. As you walk with him now, you are being saved from the power of it. But there'll be a day when you stand before him, you'll be saved from the very presence of sin. It won't even be in your mind anymore. It'll be as if it never existed. Oh, how about you? I hunger for that day. No wonder why he has to wipe our brains clean. Because if we could remember back, we would remember sin. And that's not a good thing. How could heaven be a place without sin if we could still bring it in our memories? He says, I make all things new and the former things will not be brought to mind anymore. So hear me as we wrap this up. I've already said that like, what, five times now? You can see why we can't miss that verse, right? He's like, I want to bless you, but part of the blessing is to recognize I have plans right now in your life, things that are actually slated for 2014 that I'm not done with. I have things slated for 2015 you have yet to discover, and that gets me excited and fills me with hope of what the Lord's going to do in my life as well, and not just yours, but mine too, and in the body here, the, the life of this fellowship, our fellowship. But part of that is this. He's going to fight the battles, so stop staring at the enemy. Stop trying to evaluate him. Stop looking and going, you know what identifies me? This thing that happened way back when. You know what identifies me? This thing that tweaked me back when. You know what identifies me? This. And God's like, that does not identify you. I identify you. I am your Lord and Savior, and I am the Almighty. And if I'm the Almighty, I'm going to walk you forward. We're going to leave that behind. And I've got brand new things to put in its place. Leave the space for it. So don't want any of it. Don't want any of its fame and its fortune for yourself. Make Christ known. Don't want any of its importance. Make Christ known. Love Him let him bless you. It's like, I want to bless you. So in other words, think of it this way. Stop spending all your time trying to make it about you. God's like, I've already made it about you. Why don't you make it about me so we can kind of make it even? You don't need to think about you. I'm thinking about you. My, my thoughts outnumber the sand on the shore. Stop making it about you. I'll make it about you. You make it about me. Isn't that a healthy relationship here? God's like, I love you as much 
more than everyone except one person, you. And actually, truth be told, he loves us even more than we love us. So as we bring this, listen, leave nothing. Take it. Leave who you were behind. Let God reinvent you and take the new land. Love God back. And then let him bless you. How? Obeying. On the cross, he paid our price. God says here that I didn't just take you, I redeemed you. Scripture tells us we were bought at a price, 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 7. So glorify God in your body and don't become slaves of men. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for what you've done in this time. I thank you, Lord, for this text. Here in this room, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone that's got that sort of but in their spirit, yes, God, but... Shut it down. Shut down the butts of doubt. And replace it with the hope that comes in faith. Lord, that maybe there is area, and it seems like we're more familiar with land we haven't gotten sometimes than the land we have. But you've delivered us from so much already into you. And we recognize there's more work to be done. Thank you that you are the surgeon. But Lord, let us not be party to the problem. But rather, Lord, let us be living in your love. Let us respond properly. So, Lord, I pray right now if there be any Egypt in us, and maybe we've gotten counseling, but it really wasn't godly. It wasn't biblical. We've gotten the influence from wherever we've gotten it. But scripturally, you tell us that we are to leave what is behind and press forward for the upward call of you. In Christ Jesus then I pray today, Lord, we would allow you to reinvent us the way you want to. And Lord, in that, as we cry out in the name of Jesus, that you would, Lord, put peace where there's discord, rest where there's unrest, joy where there has been angst, rest where there has been bitterness. May we willingly let go to let you reinvent us the way you ordain. And in that, Lord, let our Egypt remain past. And then where you deploy us, Lord, let us not succumb to the standards of the world around us, but bring us in as a light in an otherwise dark place. And with that, Lord, use us. Use us today. Give us strength among each other, Lord, that we would encourage each other in You. That in our seeking You, that we could be encouraged to know there are others like ourselves. That this place would be so different from the world, we would recognize the difference You're trying to make. And that would be a genuine celebration here. And Lord, we would, that we would love You back You've never asked us to initiate this love relationship, but rather, Lord, you have. 
given us the privilege of responding to your love. Never because we've earned it, but because you simply are love. So with that in mind, Lord, we want to love you back. That's what you've been telling us now for chapters. What you really want is our love. And in that, Lord, allow us to be in no way in our lifestyle and choices and in values an obstacle to the blessings that you want to pour forth in our life. You tell us no good thing will you withhold from those who walk uprightly. May we walk uprightly and then so trust you that, Lord, what you give is good, whether we want to call it good or not. We know it's for your purposes, knowing that the most important thing in your life is our intimacy with you. Let there be nothing in competition with that. Even good things can become competition. Don't let them be. Put them proper places in our heart where they belong. And today we openly confess that all of this is possible because the gift you gave us at the cross when you sent your son, Jesus the Christ, to die on that cross for our sins. And he died there and paid our price just like Scripture promised. He was buried, and just like Scripture promised, three days later, he rose again. And so we say, Lord, that yes, yes to Jesus, not only as our Savior, but as our Lord today, that he would truly be the Lord, our God, and not just the Lord God. So with that, you have the right to our lives to do with it as you wish. You've redeemed us, you've paid for us, you've bought us at a price We give you our lives back and say, now use us to transform this very needy and desperate world around us. Give us the joy of that journey, of that adventure, with our eyes on you, not on ourselves, not on our past, not on our Egypt, of what we thought we were or what we think we could be because of it, or or with our eyes on the Canaan in front of us as if somehow we feel like we need to blend in with that, but that our eyes are on you so that we would blend in with you, that we would actually look more like you and be your ambassador like you call us to. And so, Lord, here we are, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior. Lord, lead us now into that, we pray in your name. Amen.